October 4, 2016. For Jennifer and her husband Chris and their four children, it was just a regular Tuesday up until around 8 p.m. that evening. Jen was driving home and she had their two daughters in the car. She stopped at a stop sign and then proceeded into the intersection without seeing the motorcycle that was approaching on her left. The motorcycle hit her car and with that collision, the lives of two families were forever changed. David, the driver of the motorcycle, was taken to the hospital where he died two days later. With a story like this, there are a lot of different aspects to talk about. The feelings of guilt, her overwhelming sadness, her fear of possible criminal charges, and what happened when she had a chance encounter with one of David's friends. Jen also talked about what she's doing now to help others who found themselves in similar situations. This is a flashback episode. Jen came on and told this story over five years ago on the very first episode of this podcast. In a minute, you'll hear that. And afterward, I'll play a conversation I just had with Jen recently to catch up on what's going on with her lately. It's a lot. One of the takeaways from this conversation is that it's good to see things from a different perspective. You know, we hear about accidents like this every day, and it's really easy to assume that the person is just some selfish jerk who was talking on their phone or texting or just not paying attention, even though we really don't know what actually happened. Sometimes those assumptions are true, but not always. Today, we get to hear the other side of that story. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger. And I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this is this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad. And that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes. And it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads. And I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad and then on with today's episode. 
This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Jen, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me. Do you listen to podcasts? You know, I've only listened to a few. Um, if I happen to fumble upon an advertisement on Facebook or something and, you know, it catches my eye. But I'm not a faithful follower of podcasts. Um, okay. Busy mom. Well, maybe, maybe this someday. summer. Maybe this summer. <laughs> you know, I'm off during the summer, so maybe I can get caught up on the world of podcasts. You have been through a lot. And but before we get into you know, what has happened or, you know, the event on that day in October. Can you tell us a little bit about what your life was like leading up to that? I know you've got some kids, you, your husband is a, is a, a coach, I think. And can you just tell us a little bit about what were your, what was your life like before the accident? Sure. Um, you know, I think about my life before the accident a lot. Um, I'm just, you know, firstborn daughter. Um, I have one sister who's younger than me, and so I have firstborn syndrome. <laughs> um, I love my parents. They are just some of the kindest, most supportive people you'll ever meet. Um, grew up in Texas, lived in Dallas my whole life. Um, married to my husband now almost 17 years, and we have four beautiful children. And yes, he is a coach. He coaches everything. Um, at a small private Christian school. So I'm a teacher. Um, life was, um, I, I don't know, normal. <laughs> I don't know if there's a normal. Um, felt pretty normal, you know, voter and um, involved in our church and community and all those normal things. You know, I studied special education. I worked in all kinds of different schools. We've been in ministry. We worked at a children's home for several years. And um, so, Our life was always unique before the accident, um, and we have had adversity. I feel I tell people that our marriage was kind of founded on struggle. We got married young. Nobody wanted us to get married. (laughs) We were just babies, but we were so in love, and um, and it worked out. (laughs) So far, it's worked out. Yeah, we're doing we're doing good. Not, but not too long before the accident, you 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 had some medical issues with one of your daughters or two daughters. Yeah. Is that did I read that correctly? We, yes. Um. So, uh, when our oldest daughter was three, she had neurosurgery, um, to uh, correct a tumor that had developed on her spine called a syrinx. So, um, through that process, which was like eight to nine months of getting a diagnosis, um, we found out that. Two of our children, our oldest and our daughter, Katie, has cranial synostosis, and it's kind of a, it's a neurological um, deformity of how the, the brain and the sutures close. So you can't really tell it sometimes from looking at them, um, but it can create complications later, like the syrinx on her spine. Um, so she had uh, surgery at three, you know, because she was trying to explain to me boo-boo and you know, there's ants on my feet, but there's no ants there. Um, so she had brain surgery at three 
And um, later, you know, we went through um, some other things with her. Uh, So the short version, the short version of that is basically for the eight months leading up, my family had extreme kind of emotional stress, but nothing compared to the accident. Like no previous things I'd ever experienced could prepare me for that, but I believe it prepared me for that. Like just the overcoming and the support system and the believing, you know, my faith had been built up, seeing things happen. So it helped and it, it helped and it hindered. <laughs> like Because, yeah, because I can see what you're saying. You were already a little stressed out from going through all that. Right. But on the other hand, kind of like exercising makes your muscles stronger. You know, if you go through that kind of thing, it could make your mental outlook maybe some uh, stronger as well. Right. Is that? Well, my faith was certainly stronger. Um, my faith, my faith was stronger because I had solidified witnessing God answer prayers and miracles for us, and so then it kind of becomes just so real that nothing can take it away from you. But the accident actually almost did. So I. I almost lost hope and faith um, working through my accident. All right. Tell us about October the 4th of 2016. It was just a normal day that day. And, and I, you know, I want to tell you that I'm not OCD or particular about anything, um, really. I mean, I leave like the toothpaste off the toothpaste thing and that drives my husband crazy. I leave cabinet doors open you know, I'm an artist and I do math and I'm kind of all over the place. But when it comes to driving, I'm kind of particular, you know, maybe even arrogant before the accident where I could tease my husband that like, well, someone's had a ticket because he's had tickets and I've never had a ticket. And, you know, he's had four totaled car accidents and I've never had an accident. And I would tease him pretty regularly if I had the opportunity before the accident, which made it really hard. But um, so October was a normal day. I taught class. It was a Tuesday and the kids were very busy. You know, boys had swim. Katie had uh, volleyball. And, you know, we have our little Haven who you know goes around with all of us. And you know, I taught school that day and went to the gym and got a workout in and Basically, because the boys were at swim practice, I couldn't stay for volleyball. And so I asked a friend of mine to take uh, take Katie. And she's like, oh, yeah, I've got her. We're actually going after the game to eat as a team. I was like, great. I'm going to be at the YMCA. And uh, she said, well, I'll just bring her to you after we're done eating. And I was like, awesome. Great. Thank you. You know. And so I, you know, I watched the sunset that day and um, there's a huge window where my elliptical was. And so I enjoyed, you know, watching. We, we were kind of on a downside, you know, Haven was recovered. I, I think I, I was kind of de-stressing to where the school had already gotten to a routine. And I felt like I could finally start, you know, getting back into the gym and making good use of that swim practice time. And you know, so I felt it was a good day. It was a, it was a great day. And about eight o'clock, I had just finished out my workout and I got a text from the mom and she said, 
she was running home to drop off her girl. So she's like, I'm dropping my girls off and then I'm coming to the gym. And I just wrote her back and I said, well, that, that doesn't make sense. If you're home, stay home. I'll just come get Katie instead. You know, I didn't want her to have to come, come, I, you know, drop her off and get back out. So I took the girls and went to go get Katie and I picked her up, said hi to my friend. It was cold. It was kind of just starting to get chilly, not like terribly cold, but you know, chilly. So she ran to the car and we, you know, we were just talking about the game. How'd you do during that third match? You know, did you make your goal? You know, did you score? How was your serve? You know, just normal things from the, um, from the house back to the exit of that subdivision. So, so both girls were with you at this time. Right. So my four-year-old, four and 12. You know, I, I knew my, my friend's home, you know, I've been there mainly more during the day, but not as much during, you know, at nighttime. And it had just started kind of getting dark early by eight. You know, I don't know. It's basically I, when I got to the, um, there's a road, the main road, I say main road, but it's a country road and there isn't really anything past that subdivision or at least I thought there wasn't, I'd never explored. If I had turned right, I'd never really explored turning right um, on that country road. I've always just gone left. And I came to a stop sign and I was just, you know, talking to um, my daughter. And then I started to turn and I didn't know, but at the same time, there was a man coming on his motorcycle to my left um, up the hill and I didn't see him until I entered into the lane. So, you know, it's just, it happened so fast and so much happened during that fast time. Like I remember thinking, oh my gosh, that's a car. I remember looking back over my shoulder and seeing my daughter and her face just lit up with light. You know, my only thought was to accelerate. I don't know. I, that was just what I did. I just accelerated and I braced for impact. Like I literally, everything happened so fast. Yeah. I looked over at my daughter and her just, all I can explain is that like the whole car just filled with light. All of a sudden it was like no light. And then suddenly just light. And I looked at her face where her jaw just dropped and I, and I braced for impact. And, um, and then there was no impact, you know? I mean, there was. It was just little. And hold on. <laughs> I didn't understand what that meant at first. I, I had already accelerated. So I kind of like went really fast. There was a little bit of skid marks on the street where I just accelerated and then ended up kind of in a ditch on the other side of this country road. Cause I mean, we were in like a country road and um, there was just, I ended up in a ditch in front of someone's middle piping property. And it was just like that. I mean, our worst nightmare. Um, what you can't even, I don't even completely know how to describe to someone how life changed instantly, not just for this sweet man that was there but 
for us too and his children, you know, so, but basically I had a collision with a motorcyclist and I, uh, took me a second to just think what just happened, you know, like I had to, your brain had to process. Cause like I had prepared to be crunched or something like, and I had to think like, I don't understand. And Katie said, mama, did you, someone just hit us? Did someone just hit us? You know? And, um, I had to say, yeah, I think they did. So Katie was already crying. Haven didn't understand. So she started crying and I looked in the rearview mirror and that's when I, um, I saw him and, uh, all there was, was his light from his motorcycle. And, um, I realized what had happened. So I looked over at my 12 year old and I said, stay in the car and pray. Mommy's got to go help him. And, um, I grabbed my phone and I shut the door and both my girls were just crying in the car. And I ran in the dark towards him because we didn't have any light. And, um, you know, this thing about this intersection is it's like a kind of a, it's kind of at a, there's, it's really not a good spot from either side. There's kind of a slight elevation from the right change. And then there's a more elevation from the left. So it's kind of a spot where we, we were both in a very dangerous place. And then I had a black car. And so my black car was just in a ditch with my girls. I didn't turn the hazards on, you know, I didn't think to do any of those things. I just left them. Um, I turned the car off and just left them. And she didn't have a cell phone at that point. I took the cell phone and I called, you know, called 911. And when I got there, he was not um, responsive. And I suddenly, just like kind of what you hear about, like I lost all thought. I didn't know the street name of where I was. I don't know, autopilot, but I just did whatever the 911 operator told me to do. And what's amazing about that is just suddenly there was a neighbor. I mean, I was screaming and I was waving our hand and I was trying to do what the operator. I mean, I don't even know. Like some parts of me can't even recreate this little space and time completely. Like there's some things I remember and some things I can't even answer. Like um, I was shocked. I, I kind of later looked back to see how long was I on the 911 one call like I, I wanted to just kind of see and it was only like less than three minutes so from calling to um having help was all less than three minutes and I can't even process how that all happened okay, I need help
is out of Grand Harbor Court, but I don't know where Grand Harbor is. I did what they told me to do, like check for breathing, and um, and he was still breathing. It was just really shallow, and I did what they asked me to do. And um, and were your kids still in the car? Yeah, they were still in the car, and I could hear them. Um, you know, they're screaming, "Mama!" But I, I couldn't go to them, and I didn't want to let go of his hand and um suddenly you know there was a neighbor and i consider this uh neighbor a hero i think his name was richard i tried to send him a thank you note i don't know if he ever got it but he took he took over what the operator was telling us to do which was cuz i was trying to do compressions and i wasn't strong enough so he he took over and he was above him you know 
and I don't know how long he was there before. Uh, miraculously, there was a trooper that was, uh, when they got the call, just literally a couple blocks away. And so she got there really quickly so that we could, you know, start giving him oxygen with a little mask. And th- at that point, my hearing kind of went out. And I just, I could no longer hear the operator talk to me. I just couldn't. And I don't even know how to explain that. So I just gave my phone to someone, you know, and um, I just held his hand and I prayed and they did all the work. I mean, I just kind of melted. I didn't have anything in me left. So there I was, you know, suddenly in this accident and scared to death and scared for this man. and you know, in complete shock, like, you know, shaking, couldn't hear shock, like real shock, you know, they resuscitated him and, and then CareFlight came and took him to a hospital where he could get help. And, uh, you know, I just, that was, that was, I mean, that was kind of like, that was how that day ended. And it was not how I would have ever thought that day would end, you know? How do you just, from that, just go home and go to bed? Right. Nothing's normal anymore. Nothing was normal. And and it's still not normal. Here I am 20 months away and, and things aren't normal. My normal from before the accident, there is life before and life after. There is Jennifer before and Jennifer after. I'm a different person, um, not just emotionally, but neurologically. I've had my brain scanned (laughs) and I have trauma in my brain. Like they can see the gray matter of, um, they're called low waves. It's one of the therapies that I tried. And she could see that even just my brain waves have changed uh, since my accident. So, so, but that night, you know, there were lots of um, miracles that happened. Like, I'm grateful that we could resuscitate him enough to where he got to a hospital and his children had 48 hours with him. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut. With Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic, go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO1 Daily Symbiotic 
at seed.com slash what, code 25what. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV. And her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day. I heat it for a few minutes and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what, or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what, or going to cookunity.com what. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. You know, he passed away technically on the 6th. And so I'm sure his family thinks of him on October 6th. But for me, it's always going to be October 4th. I mean, I don't know for sure, but when we were still alone, I I thought he was going to say something. I actually thought I had got his attention, you know, and the operator had asked me to to listen for breathing to, you know, to get, see if his chest was moving. And I, um, I thought he was going to speak to me and, and he just exhaled, you know, I don't know, but I, I hold that, that little moment very sacred. And his, his name is David. His name was David. Right. Do you know anything about his family? I know very little. I mean, I've tried to be pretty respectful of the family. This is something that I feel like maybe the public should know because I, I have found twice where people were very shocked when I tell them this. Uh, families who have experienced something like this, we are advised immediately to not speak to the family. Um, we are advised not to go to the hospital. We are advised to never try to initiate contact. Not just advised, but strongly advised. Is this advised from friends Police or from no, legal? No, legal. Yeah, from lawyers, insurance, uh, the state trooper. I still wrote them a letter. I, we lived in a small Texas town, so I tried to 
I tried to do a little bit of research, you know, and then God would just provide little ways for me to learn something here and there. I know that he had children, um, three children. I know he had a deeply involved brother. I know that he was a veteran. And um, in fact, that's where he was headed. I didn't know that there was a VFW just a couple, um, not even a half mile. So he was a half mile to his destination. Not even a half mile, maybe more like a quarter mile from where he was going. But I, I knew I did. They did tell me he was a donor, and I'm grateful for that. And I have been told that he was a Christian, and so I'm grateful for that. Can Can you talk about in the in the days and weeks following the accident? the support of your family and friends and your church family. How big of a factor was that? Um, It was, it's everything. I think I was in complete shock, kind of like, I, I feel like I was kind of floating, especially while he was still in ICU and continuously just praying that he would survive and that there would just be some kind of miracle. You know, I was doing that, and that wasn't, you know, for me, that was, I just wanted him to live. And so, um, I think uh, I was the first few days in just complete shock, and no one really has a, like, a precedent or, like, you know, to be able to, have any kind of prior knowledge on how to deal with this. No one that we knew really, besides my pastor who had been through something similar actually the year before. And so they were the ones that came to me. Um, My husband came and got the girls. Um, They had to block off the street, you know, both ways. And um, he had to come and get the girls from me. And later he stayed with the kids and our pastor and his wife came to the scene to pick me up. Um, It took several hours to process the scene. And I just sat there and um, they came to help me. And what's just crazy about that is that my pastor had a, um, a man throw himself into oncoming traffic the year before. Um, The man was very intoxicated and trying to commit suicide. And so when my pastor hit him, he went through and our church family rallied around him. And we knew that loss of sleep and loss of, you know, appetite and our pastor, who is good friends with us, you know, had to go through that. So he had a point of reference that he, he did. knew what you were going to go through. Right. Yeah. In some ways, like he, he kind of knew mm-hmm. it was then deemed not his fault, which I think, um, and he did not have... The other things that had led up to that, you know, like we had already been through some stress and we were still going through other stressors. And then he was told, it's not your fault. Where in my case, I take responsibility. It was my fault. I did cause this accident. I did not yield the right of way and I did not see him. And um, I mean, I yielded to the stop sign, but I didn't see him. I don't know why. I'll never know why. And I've asked my brain why. And I think that's part of why I struggle now is because 
our bodies are little machines, like our brains are still in the run in the background running. Why? Why did that happen? Why didn't you see him? If you don't know why you didn't see him, could it happen again? And that little voice and that little program is going on in the back of your head forever until you kind of have a concrete understanding. So yeah, our pastor, Jason, and his wife, Susan, were amazing to us. They met me there. They drove my car home for me. And they counseled with Chris to kind of watch me, which I didn't know that at the time. So they told your husband to kind of keep an eye on you to watch signs of... Not Problem. eating, not sleeping. I called my parents. I, the only people that I called were my husband and my parents while I was at the scene. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, that's very right. I mean, I don't think I really, I lost all appetite. Food had no taste. It was very mm-hmm. interesting. Like I literally had zero taste. And I mean, I would just drink water. I just literally just floated around kind of dazed. I would hear people and I would interact, but I mainly spent the next few weeks crying, just weeping continuously. Just couldn't sleep. Even when I laid my head down, it wasn't, I never went into REM sleep. That in itself is a pretty big thing to to not have REM sleep. Right. That's a big thing. So you were consciously, you were processing the, the, how was, you know, the, the fact that he had passed away. Right. But you had to also be considering what's going to happen to you now. Yes. And that was, and I actually asked my trooper um, in the car when um, he called me into his patrol car. And and I finally got up the courage to say, you know, what's what's going to happen to me? And he had to give me a very, I mean, that was my nature. I want you, I'm a firstborn, like shoot me straight. Um, you know, whatever it is, tell me what it's going to be. And then we're going to face this. And, you know, I'm, I'm a good girl. I don't like to get in trouble and I struggle with people pleasing. And, um, you know, he had to think for a second and then he had to say, you know, he had to tell me, well, this is, if he doesn't, if he makes it, you'll hear from a lawyer, you know, you know, his, his lawyer will probably get in, in touch with your insurance. And I was like, okay. He said, if, if he doesn't make it, I'm going to, you'll be hearing more from me and his family will probably get a lawyer. And I said, okay. And, and he said, and there, every fatality in our County goes to grand jury, every, every fatality. And a grand jury, for people that aren't familiar with a grand jury, it's a group of people that listen to all the facts and decide if charges are to be brought. Right. And they do that to protect the city, you know, from being sued to make sure that, you know, every investigation was thorough. And um, it's a scary thing because it's still 12 people that would decide, you know, the facts of that case. And I now have met people who that could go either way. And, um, so we had to wait, you know, three months. I hired, um, the best criminal defense attorney in town and that's just weird, you know, you know, to be told you need a criminal defense attorney, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, I just, my especially for someone you, and you describe yourself as a firstborn, a rule follower, right? you know, all details. And, and all of a sudden you've broken the worst rule of all that that's gotta be just yeah, unforgettable. How, how does your brain process that? Right. It, 
unforgivable, I mean, the worst unforgivable thing. And um, I just immediately, I mean, yeah, so you're just in complete shock. And, you know, my parents and my husband were just very like, oh, um, my therapist and our pastor, hey, these are the facts. You were, you were not speeding. You were not on your phone. You were not drinking and driving. You know, you stopped at the stop sign. This is a close, this is done. And I, I think it's going to be in your favor. My therapist kept saying, I, I really feel like this is going to be in your favor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and no one can give you absolutes. And um, of course, you feel like maybe you should be punished. Maybe I deserve whatever they need to do. Do I need to die? I mean, I, I literally went through everything like, do I deserve this too? Because I caused this. Do I do I deserve jail time? And um, am I a killer? Am I a monster? Uh these are all the thoughts I had to suddenly process, you know, do I have a victim now? I mean, I just, I mean, I couldn't even wrap my brain around all the things that happen in a split second. It was extremely hard. Um, How long did you have to wait to, to find out if charges were going to be brought? At, right at three months, <clears throat> right at three okay. months. Yeah. We actually got the decision right before Christmas. Um, and that's another miracle. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, before we get to the grand jury decision, can you tell me about the one time you were having, you were having a sale and you met a neighbor? Right. Um, so I had a couple of big prayer requests, you know, my prayer every day was for his kids that he, they had a support system like mine or better. Because I, I had people around me loving me and walking me through it, you know. And I just hoped and prayed that they had that stability through their grief. And so that was one prayer. Another prayer I had was that I could somehow meet someone that knew him. And then I was also kind of terrified that anybody I knew would know him. So it's, it's funny. I mean, it was really right there. Like I wanted to meet someone that knew him to maybe kind of know a little bit more about this man that I suddenly truly cared for that I only knew for two minutes, but I feel like it was just the the most important two minutes of his life. Cause I mean, you know, so I was having a garage sale and I had been praying that and, um, you know, I want to meet someone, Lord, I just want them to know then I'm not a monster and then I'm sorry. And so there I was having this garage sale and I had a friend and my mom there helping me. And, um, our neighbor came over and said, Hey, Hey, how much do you want for this elliptical? And I was like, I'll make you a good deal. I will make you a great deal, you know, neighbor special. And he was just the sweetest old man. I mean, I'd seen him a lot. Um, I knew his wife was a gardener and he was always, he's retired and coming and going. That's pretty much all I knew about him. And he said, oh, my wife would be so thrilled if I, if I surprise her with this elliptical. And I was like, awesome, you know. And then he, he paused for a second and he said, he said, well, let me go run some veterans over to the VFW because I help people who can't get around anymore. I, I'm going to go drop, drive them around a little bit and I'll be back. And if it's still here, I want to buy it. And I said, well, I'll hold it for you. And, but then I thought my brain stopped 
and I knew what he was talking about. He, that VFW that's right there where my accident was. And I knew that David was there. And my heart just started pounding. You know, and my mom and my friend were just sitting there like they're still sitting in their chair. And I was sweating. Like I immediately felt anxiety. And, and then I looked at him and I, you know, I reached out my hand to him, which is really kind of weird. <laughs> he probably thought, what is she doing? And I grabbed his hand and I said, did you know David? And this is uh, probably within a month to six weeks or so. I, I get really foggy on time. Time is difficult for me. And he looked at me and he said, I mean, I didn't even say his last name. I just said David. And he said, yes. And then I had to tell him it was me. And um, yeah, I think he had to kind of process that for a second. And then he, he was like, I would have never thought it was you. Because when you hear about these accidents, you immediately think about this irresponsible, drunk, you know, you know, selfish. You know, we all are guilty of this. We are all, I have eaten my own words. And I can tell you about that in a minute if you want to. But I literally have eaten my own words in situations like this. So I said it, it was me. And I began to shake and quiver. And then my mom started crying and, um, and I had to say, I'm so sorry that you lost a buddy, you know, and I, please tell anyone at the VFW, I'm so very sorry for their loss. And he, you know, said, thank you. And he said, I will make sure I pass this on because you know, they thought the worst of the person who did this. and. He said, I'll make sure I tell people because he kind of knew me before, you know, just just friendly neighborish type stuff, but knew enough of me to realize that I am broken. I mean, <laughs> I just literally broke down. I mean, I almost felt like kneeling and letting him just like hit me <laughs> or something, you know. I mean, that's that's kind of how you feel. Um, like you feel as if you need to be just, I don't know. Just extreme guilt. Extreme guilt. It's extreme guilt. And it's, um, but there's nothing that can make this better. You know, there's, there's no amount of money. There's no, there's no words that I could ever say. There's nothing that I can truly do to make this better for anyone who loved this man. He was an innocent man and he lost his life very tragically. And, you know, yeah, I have to live with that. It's a, it's kind of a daily thing. So I, he did, he bought that elliptical and, and he was very sweet. I found out later he did talk to his children, um, or at least a family member on my behalf, which I didn't know he did that for a while. I didn't, I had no idea. I didn't ask him to do that. Um, I told him, he, he mentioned, Hey, you know, if you ever want to come and talk to the officers, you know, we can invite you into the meeting and you can address the officers. And I, I eventually did do that. But yeah, that's what um, 
happened. It was an answered prayer and it was very scary, but it was also kind of relieving that I got to say sorry to at least someone and um, pass on my condolences and, you know, share my heart. And I felt really good. I felt very, very grateful that the Lord would provide that. It was just amazing. I feel like that was a true miracle that he just happened to say that. Otherwise, I would have never known. If he just said, hey, I got to go drive a buddy to run an errand, I would have never known. He just happened to say VFW. And I happen to now know that we're down the road. The accident happened within a mile of my home. Um, So, uh, yeah. Okay, so it's a so you said it's like a few days before Christmas, you got you got the news. How did that happen? Um, so we we didn't think it was going to happen, and we were all praying that I would be seen by this grand jury. Um, my attorney said that you know grand juries they get seasoned, you know, so when you know they they have a term of six months, and so when they first get on their first session, they're very sensitive and they don't want to make anything wrong. So they pretty much indict everybody because <laughs> they don't want to carry that burden either. I mean, can you imagine if you really had to put yourself in someone else's shoes? Like if this had been my husband, you know, I get it. I mean, you know what I'm right. saying? Like I, I get it. And, um, the day of the grand jury, I did prepare. I had, um, you know, my parents came into town and we had people that were praying, um, ready, you know, to be with us. And, uh, I shipped out all the kids. They each had a friend to go to and it was in the middle of the week, but they got to go spend the night on a school night with friends and our friends that knew what was happening. They had, you know, they were going to distract them. They had an activity planned and, um, you know, everything was fished out um, to make sure that Chris could just focus on me, you know, getting, if I was, you know, indicted to, um, to place bond and, um, you know, and they assured me, you know, if that happens, we're going to put you in a safe place. You'll do what's called a walkthrough. I mean, <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> mm-hmm. and that's actually, Chris didn't really, my husband didn't really have kind of a, an emotional, I mean, he had emotional, but he like, it really became real that night before. He probably, as a man, he wanted to help, but it was, everything was, this was out of his control. Right. Right. And, um, you know, and so I'll tell you like, you know, before the accident, I kind of was that person, you know, when, when Haven or Katie needed an MRI or a scan or a neurologist appointment, you know, I made it, you know, I kind of handled the insurance and I handled the doctor's appointments and I handed, you know, I would take care of it, all those things for us, you know, I kind of took care of at one point finances. And then when I went to graduate school, he took over finances, but I kind of, you know, had, he was always the leader of my home, but I I feel like I, I don't know how to describe it, but I was that go-to person. Like if it needed to be done, I could, I could do those things Mm -hmm. and I could be reliable and, you know, I could juggle family and work and graduate school and, you know, ministry. And then I couldn't, he knew that in that moment, like he had to kind of take things 
on that he had never had to in 15 years of marriage. And he did it so wonderfully and so amazingly where he, he literally, he played out our vows. I mean, vows are no joke, <laughs> you know, whether it was just making sure that I ate or slept or let me cry and just hold me. And at that point, he had really taken, since the accident, like groceries, lunches for the kids for school. I mean, I, I literally couldn't hardly do any of those things just besides just breathe. Um, breathing took effort. Um, and when we got to the grand jury, when I set up, I did set up who was going to go where I, it kind of almost like I felt like I was back to my old self just for a brief little bit because I wrote out a piece of paper and I said, okay, this is the contact information for so-and-so and and they have so-and-so and, And, you know, for one of our kids. And this is the contact information to so-and-so family. And they have, you know, they have Katie. And this is the contact, you know, and I laid it out for him in case I wasn't there. (laughs) That's crazy. (laughs) And I don't know if it was just the glimmer of that's how I used to be. Having it all for him laid out, you know, like here's the doctor appointment. This is the time. This is where we're going to be. This is the address. You know, I don't know. But suddenly he broke down and then I was strong again. And, um, Mm. but thankfully we had that next day and, you know, everybody was ready. And my lawyer said, if you get a call from me, that means I need you to come down to the courthouse. And in case they wanted to, the grand jury wanted to, you know, ask me questions or, um, they told me that arraignment and things like that wouldn't happen till after five. They kind of, I guess, see all the cases and then all the decisions are given out all at one time is what they said the procedure is. So we had expected to not know yes or no until five o'clock because they want to make sure the grand jury has been able to dismiss and no one, you know, is, uh, aggressive or upset about a decision, you know? So that, I mean, so we had all kind of taken the day off and many people were surrounding us and everything had been figured out. And my, my mom had just got there and there popped up on my phone was my attorney's office calling. And I just remember just thinking, okay, (laughs) okay, you know, Okay. Um, and he didn't really prepare me for what they might say. He just said, you just go through whatever they ask you. Just be as honest as you can, you know. And um, so I saw that call come in and I think I wanted to vomit. You know, my mom looked at me and so why don't you go upstairs to take that call and you know and uh when I answered the phone it wasn't my lawyer and I was really confused and he said Jennifer um I'm our dis- the district attorney he said his name and he said I just the grand jury asked for me to call you personally and tell you that they've 
given you a no bill. And they want you to have a Merry Christmas with your family. And I was just in shock. Um, because I wasn't supposed to know until 5 o'clock. And it was probably 10 a.m.-ish. I don't know. So I received my new bill. And there was this was literally the week before Christmas. And we hadn't put up a tree. My mom hadn't put up a tree. You know, basically... Anyone who loved me was kind of like in pause. You know, Thanksgiving, there was no normal family celebration. I mean, we got together, but it was like different. Like a cloud. Like a cloud. And, and it wasn't just a cloud because I was facing something. It was also like constantly feeling, how should I get to celebrate when there is an empty chair that will not be filled at another family's get together? You know, like how dare I celebrate and enjoy my loved ones when somewhere there are people missing him. So it wasn't just that because we did begin to celebrate and I was so grateful that that part could be behind me. That was, that was certainly, I can't even describe. So, I mean, I've been through brain surgery, you know, signing a waiver saying your daughter may not make this and, um, or she may be paralyzed, you know, and then I did it again. I mean, nothing can compare to that, that 90 days as, three months of waiting to decide if, um, if I was going to go to jail and, you know, and now I've met people who had complete freak accidents, but were indicted. Um, some even that did still be found guilty and, and they're so amazing. They're amazing that I thought life would be over. And that was one of the things where I literally thought life would be over. My marriage would be over. How could I even ask my husband to wait for me um, if I had to go serve time in jail? Like, how could, I mean, I just could not completely wrap my brain around it. But now that I've met other people, they are just so brave. I mean, it's just, I'm in awe of the stories that I've now heard and people that I've met that have been through experiences like this where everything I thought, well, I just couldn't have survived through this. Now I've met other people or hear, heard other stories and I just, I'm in awe of them. Just Well, let's talk about that a little bit. You have a, you have a blog and there's a Facebook group. And so you are contacted regularly by other people who have gone through similar situations. What, what do you say to them? How do, how do you tell them to get through it? You're not alone. When I was um, in the weeks of this happening, you can search anything. You can search all kinds of things. You know, grief and loss of a child, loss of a spouse, loss of a dog, loss of a friend, um, loss of job, grieving marriage, grieving you cannot find grief of a stranger. Um, you will not find something to help you, a self-help book for you accidentally killed someone. 
you know, there there's a movie called Manchester by the Sea, and it's about what happens to this man who accidentally killed his children. And the movie, it took me, once I found out what the movie was about, it took me months before I had the courage to watch the movie. And I identified with this man and this character amazingly. And the research, what's what's even more interesting about that is uh, Matthew Roderick, the actor, had an accident causing fatality. And he was in the movie. And I would suspect he was able to help that fellow actor who played the dad. We, we have a lot of things in common. Almost all of us 100% have, and I can't speak for everyone, um, we grieve in different ways. Grief, grief is a beast. Grief, grief, you can't put in a box. You know, you can't, it's all going to be a little bit different for different people, but there is little boxes you can check off. And you, I went through all the emotions of grief. I experienced PTSD, um, anxiety suddenly, panic attacks hallucinations. I mean, you, you name it. Um, I went through it and I always felt alone, which is crazy because I had literally just, I became stronger. Um, like my parents and I, we were always close. I had an amazing childhood. My parents were very involved. I mean, they were, my dad is also a teacher. Um, so they were always involved, you know, with, Teacher council, parent teacher council, and um, my dad sponsored our cheer squad one time. I mean, he was just always involved. My mom was always involved. My sister, you know, we were a close family, but this was different. I was suddenly, as an adult, talking to her more regularly, hugging more, making sure we were saying I love you more. So that was, you know, something good. But I still felt alone. Because there's one, no self-help. I was told by two different therapists, I don't know how to treat you. There's not a protocol. I don't really know how, which kind of therapy to use with you. Uh, I had to seek out help. It wasn't just brought to me. Like, um, you know, victim services did not come to help me. In fact, I would not even be considered that. My trooper told me, hey. You are kind of normally when this happens, I'm making an arrest. I mean, that's what he told me sitting in that car. And normally when this happens, I am making an arrest. And I just had to look at him. He said, we don't really know what to do with you. We, I mean, when these things happen, we don't, we don't have a, you're that odd man out, that one off. So um, when you're told by therapists, they don't know how to help you and you don't know how to help yourself. And you can't even, when I tried to research, I was coming up empty. I felt so alone. And there you, you know that that can't be very rational because accidents happen every single day. And I never really stopped to think about the other driver, the other flip side. And I'll come back to, I actually kind of touched base on this a minute ago I had to eat my own words. Um, God is so good. I, I am sorry. I know I'm not here to preach or anything, but he He even convicts us and teaches us moments. For whatever reason, I had um, at some point a memory, too, actually, 
a memory of um, uh, my mom telling me that someone that I had known and she knew that there was an accident and her husband was suddenly gone and the wife was now a widow to four children. Like whatever reason, this was before my accident. I remember us sitting, you know, my mom was like, oh, I hope that person wasn't texting, probably speeding. You know, my mom said something like that. And I said to her, oh, I cannot imagine how she must feel just suddenly losing her, her husband like that. And, and I said, oh, I said, I would, I said, and this is all that I remember. I said, I would pursue that person to the ends of the law. And God gave me that memory. I said that. And I had to eat those words. And I had to, you know, months later when I remembered this, go, oh my gosh, please forgive me. Please forgive me for ever judging that person. I mean, maybe they were texting. Maybe they were being negligent. I don't know. But I didn't know the facts of that case. And yet here I was saying, oh, I'm angry for that family. And I said, I would pursue them to the ends of the law. And then here I am on the flip side saying, God, please show mercy and grace. And I'm I'm grateful for that lesson. I'm grateful for that memory. I am because when I received the hate mail, when I received not threats, but just anger and frustration, the judgment, because I did. People sought me out. I had to, you know, turn off my Facebook and I kind of reclused a little bit. And I understood. I did not retaliate. In fact, I felt understanding of their their hurt and their anger. But what I hope our group does not only offers, hey, caddy, fellow caddy, ACS survivor, you know, you're not alone. You're not alone. You are not alone. You are not a monster. You are grieving. You're not crazy. Here are suicide hotlines. Here are therapies that we've found that have helped other people. Um, we want to become like a resource. So another caddy, my sweet friend that I met through this tragedy, um, and sh- I haven't actually met her or even talked to her, but she was interviewed and I was interviewed, and we kind of came together in this amazing way, and she created a website. And so the only resource I ever found, so remember, months and months of searching, months and months and months of searching, and I would I would even search what was going to happen to me. So I would search things like um, accident plus fatality and my fault, you know, trying to, mm-hmm. you know, I would just try to, like, find something and I would find either nothing or I find things where, you know, like I found a man in Austin who was indicted. Um, he was eating a shrimp taco and a shrimp fell out of his lap because he was driving. A shrimp fell out of the taco into his lap. He was in Austin and he 
glanced down to pick up that shrimp out of his lap. And a, um, you know, lots of people bike in Austin. And he hit a cyclist. And the cyclist passed away and he was indicted. I think that's a whole nother conversation. So there's also the aspect of our our voices to educate the public about what is distracted driving. I think it's phenomenal that we're trying to improve upon texting and driving. But guys, this could happen to anyone. When I gave my interview for The New Yorker, the uh, journalist said, your story scares the hell out of me. And I pardon my language. But that's what she said. She's from New York. But that's what she said. Your story, because you are just that everyday Joe. And on that day, I'm guilty of, you know, driving while tired. I am guilty of driving and getting onto my kids in the back seat. I am guilty that, you know, I remember when I was younger, I would check my makeup while still driving, you know. Because it feels very, I mean, it, we feel like we can do that and we're not distracted. We right, can do it. Right. Other people shouldn't do that, but right. I'm okay because I can, I've got control. Or, or you think, oh, well, there's, there's, I have this open, this open road. I'm not doing anything crazy. But let's talk about when I had my investigation, it was, did you have an argument with your husband that day or the day before? How much sleep did you get? Were you getting on, you know, what were happening, what was happening with the kids? Were, were you having to get on to them? I mean, the reason why this trooper had these questions for me is because this is, this is their protocol. These are considered distractions. Mm-hmm. How loud was your radio going? Were you dancing to the lo- the songs? And I had to be like, oh my gosh, I am so grateful that in that moment, I could honestly say no. I was stopped at that stop sign. Just asking Katie, did she score? Did she get her serve over the net? You know, I didn't even have the radio on because we were talking. Haven was just chilling in her back in her car seat, you know. But I had to think about, I'm guilty of all those things. Or how many times when, you know, you're driving, and you're like, oh, man, you're in a new place. And you, oh, that was a stop sign. Oh, man, that, that light turned red. You know, and you have, oh, you know, you start to get into a lane and then you realize, wait a minute, I'm going to come back into my lane. You're like, whoa, oh, thank goodness. I didn't see that that man in my blind spot, you know, my blind spot. We all have these moments that we can take into um, our thoughts. If something had aligned, just like I, my plans changed 10 minutes before that accident. And apparently, and I don't know if this is true, he had already been at the VFW, left, and was coming back. He had just bought that motorcycle that day. You know, I mean, there's just some parts where I hope that your audience will be a ripple of compassion as they start to, because you will then notice. These accidents really do happen every day. And if you ever see it floating around Facebook about, oh, no, there's been a fatality on I-35 or whatever, you know, some highway or, and you immediately think about that family who just lost a loved one. Absolutely. 
but also to just go, wait a minute, there is a whole other aspect, not just that family, a ripple of people's lives just changed. My children's lives, his children's lives, his, you know, all these people just that are innocent to this, you know, I, I, it broke my heart that I broke my children's heart. It broke my heart that I broke my husband's heart. It broke my heart that I broke my mother's heart, you know. Seeing things, things from a different perspective, it makes me think of this. For people that are friends or family members of someone who has gone through what you've gone through, what is the right thing to say? How do you, I know some people are just, don't say anything or just kind of not interact with you anymore. But for people that really want to help, what can they do? Um, well, please don't say I once ran over a dog <laughs> and oh my gosh, I felt horrible. <laughs> oh, so they're trying to kind yeah. of identify with you yeah. by saying they hit an animal. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I know their heart was in the right place, but I just thought, oh my gosh, I would have to look at three children lost their daddy. And because I know how close my children are to their daddy and how much I value family or veterans, I put high esteem in people who've served our country. So that wasn't, that was um, kind of a sting. I know it was just, it was a try, but um, I think what really helped and, and even saying, Jennifer, this wasn't your fault. This was just an accident. This was not your fault. That's not always received well either. Um, just because it doesn't matter that it was an accident and it was somehow my fault. I was involved. I think what can help is just saying, this is hard, but I'm going to walk with you through it. And I don't know how you feel, but I'm here for you. And it's okay to be broken. And it's okay, it's okay, whatever you're feeling. If you are angry right now, if you are angry at God right now, if you are angry at yourself or whatever, you know, whatever stage you're in, I'm here, just, I'm just here. I'm just here if you need to scream, if you need to cry, if you need to, um, if you need uh, just a little help, you know. Just someone to be there because the little things like laundry or brushing your teeth become overwhelming. And that's so awful to say that, but that's where I was. I mean, to get kind of a happy face on took so much energy out of me to just go out. And then when I got back home, I immediately back into pajamas and back in my bed. You know, my my poor family didn't have me for a good four to six months. I had to decide I wanted to live. I mean, I would kind of be there, but I had to decide to fight for my health, my mental health, you know, going to the doctor and getting on medicine and finding a nighttime routine that would help me get some kind of sleep. I remember, you know, finally getting to where I would fall asleep by midnight and waking up around five and being like, 
okay, that's a start, you know. Most of the time now, I still have pretty good days, but there's some nights where nothing's going to help. The melatonin is not going to help. The Tylenol PM is not going to help. Nothing's going to help. Reading my Bible is not going to help. I'm just not going to sleep that night for whatever reason. So, and I've, I've learned that this is a lifelong thing. I've met people who had their accident 40 years ago, like Marianne. Um, and she is the founder of um, accidentalimpacts.org. And she was the only resource available anywhere in the world. Um, she termed the term caddy, which is causing accidental death and injury. Um, it's what she preferred to call herself. She is a, I don't know if she's still practicing counseling, but, you know, her story is available and she's very open and she's an, a fighter. She's an advocate for us that this should be recognized by the counseling community. And um, I feel but she's in her 70s, you know. And so I, not that I ever wanted this torch. I mean, I would have much rather fought for Chiari malformation research. <laughs> you know, I would have much rather, right. you know, advocated for special education and, or even working with at-risk youth and like what we've done before. Never in a million years would I have wanted this cause. Sometimes you don't get to choose your cause because it chooses you. Right. And so when I was crying on my therapist's couch, bless his heart, my Dr. Knox um, was amazing. And um, I'm forever grateful to him. He took me on um, because he had, you know, special knowledge. He actually is a chaplain and he works a lot with police officers and PTSD. And so anyone that is a caddy, we highly recommend a therapist that specializes in PTSD because it's as close as they can relate to that battle and, you know, survivor's guilt, um, things like that, which is all that you, ex- you know, ever, all of us experience that. And, and it's cross-culturally, you know, we've been contacted now from several countries both the wives of people and mothers of other people, all age groups, all ethnicities, and they are reporting back the same things that they can recognize. We all have these where we can finish each other's sentences. When I found the first couple of, um, I, I started a a blog and I, at first I wanted to keep it private because I was so afraid of, the backlash and the people who say you should be in jail and you should rot in hell. And, you know, I got that, you know? So I was really afraid, but then I thought if I keep this all to myself, we're never going to make a change. And I had to be willing to take that on. And so, um, I finally did that. And when other caddies find me, they, we feel like we can finish each other's sentences. We can finish each other's thoughts. And we were like, oh, my gosh, you were in my head in some of my blog posts. I mean, they, and I'm so grateful because I'm like, okay, good. If you think that and I think that, maybe I'm not crazy. Um, you know, because you want that validation that you're not crazy and because you feel crazy. So anytime I find like someone like, oh, my gosh, I can relate to that. 
you know, it helps you to feel like, okay, this is normal. My normal. I wish it wasn't normal, but this is my normal because if you feel this way and I feel this way, then we can we can at least go, okay, we're not crazy. How do we keep moving forward? And okay, well, this is what works for me. So I, you know, I, I used art therapy and I, you know, I did this thing called neurofeedback and it was amazing. I wish I could do more of it. There is, you know, somebody else who said, this is how I remember the lost. You know, they did, he did a memorial kind of thing for the victim. And that gave me an idea that of something that I wanted to do for, for David, you know, and so we can kind of, we all keep the people that we hurt in a very special place in our heart. I mean, that is something that's consistent. Even if we knew them or if we didn't know them, we hold them in just like this delicate relationship place that we can't even describe. It's weird. Um, we don't know a name for it. <laughs> yeah, maybe you need know. to create a name for it. Well, if if people want to contact you to ask you questions or for resources on how to get through something like this, how can they do that? Okay. Um, so the first website I'll give you is um, accidentalimpacts.org. And that is a website. That is Marianne. She is a social psychologist and educator. So her website, it's still, you can find it, accidentalimpacts.org. And we'll have this. You can send that information to me and I'll put it in the show notes sure. for this episode. Absolutely. And so she's kind of the trailblazer. She is a caddy herself. Her accident was over 40 years ago. And so she has blog posts. Um, her blog post about what to do with an anniversary really helped me. Um, she helped me to feel like there I wasn't alone. She has kind of like a thread forum type thing where people can post. That's how I found out about the New Yorker article and connected with another caddy. And then we have accidentalcasualties.com. And that was uh, created by my friend and fellow uh, caddy. And we have, we don't really know where it's going to go, but it's a resource. Um, it's a resource for people to just feel not alone. There is a forum. There's information on how to contact us through there. and. We try to just be a place for people to find, for anyone is welcome, resources on suicide and PTSD treatments and any treatment that is recommended to someone. We try to get information on the, the blog about that treatment. So um, so you could get that information. And um, I've, you can also email me if you want to share your story. I have several people who don't want to be involved in any kind of support group, but they've just sent me their story so that someone has heard their their story. You know, sometimes just releasing that helps. Um, I certainly found it therapeutic to finally go openly in public about my story. So I appreciate you with this as well. So, um, and that email is beautifullybrokenblog16 at gmail.com. And you're certainly welcome to email me and I can try to pray for you or listen or, you know, whatever. So I'm certainly not a doctor or a counselor, but just someone who is a friendly ear. Right. And you're familiar with the resources that are available. So maybe you can direct people to whatever's appropriate. Right. Or if they have a resource that we don't know about, I'd love to know, you know, I'm still 
I'm still a person that is deeply affected and I now live with anxiety. So um, I love to learn and about other resources. So great. Jen, um, I'm sorry your family has gone through this and, and that David's family has gone through this, but certainly grateful for you coming on here and, and sharing your story. I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people. Well, thank you. I appreciate you, Scott. Thanks for reaching out. Jen, welcome back. Hey. I should have started recording like 10 minutes ago because you and I, we, we haven't spoken since we recorded that podcast. We connect a lot still on Facebook and, and online, but uh, we had a lot of catching up to do. Oh, I know. You did an amazing job telling that story. I mean, such a difficult thing for anyone to go through. When we recorded our conversation back then, it was only about two years after the accident. Were you a little nervous about being able to get through telling all those details? So nervous. And I didn't know anything about this. You were only really the second person I'd ever talked to about it besides a family member. And even family members didn't get all the way in. I was just getting comfortable with sharing the hardest, most raw parts of struggling with this guilt and what happened. But it was also, I talked to that one journalist, you know, from the New Yorker, Alice Gregory, and there was just this spark of being free. And I didn't know what to expect. And obviously we didn't know what, what was that light going to turn into, you know, it was just a way to share my voice and, and hopefully bring light to this really terrible situation from another perspective. And I didn't really even know what that meant at that point. Right. Yeah. When we first spoke, I mean, you had no idea who I was and I couldn't show you a bunch of past episodes. Like this is how I deal with stuff like this. And you took a chance on me and it was the first episode and it was just amazing. I'll always be grateful for that. Whenever I re-listen to this episode, the part that always gets me is when you're having your yard sale and you happen to meet someone that you realized was a friend of David's. Have you, what contact have you had with anyone since then that was connected with him, like his friends or family or anyone? Uh, nothing really, except for, well, this is a whole story. Um, I became a safe to save ambassador for um, a smart app that helps people create new habits, safe driving practices. And I was an ambassador and I would go to schools. This is pre-pandemic. And I would tell young people, hey, this is what the app does. This is why you should not drive distracted. And then I would tell a little bit about my story, but they're high schoolers. So, you know, you tone it down just a bit. Wherever Safe to Save needed me to go, that's where I would go and talk. Well, the local news got word of it. And April is Distracted Driving Awareness Month. So a young journalist, you know, gets in contact with Safe to Save and says, would you send, a, you know, someone over to do a little spiel about distracted driving, you know, talk about the app. And the rep for the company said, would you go and talk to her? They're actually in Waco. And I'm like, sure, I'll talk about it. I'll do my spiel. I'll put on makeup and, and do the same kind of thing. 
Well, when talking to the journalist, I tell her my story and why I am a Safe to Save ambassador. What is the passion behind it? And I make sure to say I am not a distracted driver, but I know that if I had been, this would have got a whole lot more complicated. I would not be here, actually. I'd probably still be in prison serving a sentence, right? She did what, you know, all ambitious young journalists do, and she contacted the family. And they gave, um, right before I'm like, you know, makeup and hair done, which does not happen very often. <laughs> and she's got the camera set up. And right before she's about to record, she says, by the way, I contacted David's family and they have an off record comment that they want you to know they forgive you, but they don't want to give a comment. And I had a nervous breakdown. I lost it. I mean, dry heaving, blubbering mess, face splotchy, could barely catch my breath, kind of a panic attack. She had no idea the level of trauma that this really causes in a person and to, one, contact them without my knowledge, but then to spring that on me and something that I have literally prayed for every day for years to know that they forgive me because I'm not allowed to have contact with them. So, and I don't want to, I would never want to force anything and put anyone in an uncomfortable situation. And so to be given that message, she had no idea the level of relief, but also that that was painful. That was painful and that was difficult. Did you go ahead with the interview then? <laughs> I had, to, I mean, I was like, I need to get a minute. You're going to have to give me, I had to go completely redo my makeup, calm myself down, did a little groundwork, had to just recompose myself. And then I was also probably on guard. I mean, if I look back at that little piece, I, I was on guard because I was just so taken aback, but I also felt obligated because I wasn't just doing this for me. I was a representative for safe to save, but it wasn't the same and it was not fair how they spun that. And that made me very cautious of media, how you can cut, put an angle and a spin on something and just no, not realizing like the severity of it. Your two daughters who were with you in the car that night, how much do they remember of that? Haven, the younger one, does not remember anything. I mean, she for years still said, Mama, that man doesn't have a helmet on. Um, she was very aware, not even realizing why, of motorcycle sounds or motorcycles driving next to us. If they had a helmet, if they didn't have a helmet, if she could tell they were speeding, you know, those things. Very aware for years, probably still aware. She's 11 now. Um, Katie, um, the older, she remembers pretty much everything and she didn't get her driver's license until she was 18. She still struggles to drive on the highway or alone or at night. So this has affected her deeply. And I think we talk about it openly. Um, she talks about her anxiety. Um, she gets help with that. So it, it, it did affect her. Tell us about all your kids, your family, your husband. What What's everybody doing these days? Oh, life has changed so much. Um, 
Chris is still coaching, but in a different way. Um, we're not, we're with a homeschool group now. And he works for Baylor here in Waco. And we're so excited and what the next chapters could possibly lead into. Uh, Patrick is off in Tennessee and discovering all that life can offer. <laughs> all right. How, how old is Patrick? 21. <laughs> it's just <laughs> crazy. Oh, how am I old enough to have a 21-year-old? Every time you say the age of one of your kids, it's like you're going through some kind of pain. You know? <laughs> it hurts. Time goes on, right? Time goes on. I just, no one talks about the grief of motherhood and the letting go part. And we were so close after the accident that it, they're flying the nest. And in that in itself is a whole different level. I mean, I know the fragility of life too, and how quickly things can change and how grateful I am. So I'm more aware. And Tennessee's not very close. So um, Logan is a junior in high school and starting to look at colleges and, and busy, you know, working a job and going to school. Haven is into everything, making bracelets. She's got this little entrepreneurial spirit, making bracelets and all kinds of different things. She's always getting creative with something and they keep me busy and I'm, I love them so much. Things have changed. I mean, at the time of the accident, they were 14, 12, 10, and four. And then when you and I talked, you know, they were 16, <laughs> 16, 14, and now they're adults. That's what happens. It's what mm -hmm. happens. And you, you have a podcast of your own, which you didn't have when we spoke last. But before you tell everybody about that, you appeared on another podcast. And I have no idea why I didn't already know about this, but this is a pretty big deal. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's it's not just a, a podcast, but a whole TV production. I was on the Red Table Talk with Jada Pinkett Smith and, you know, her daughter Willow and Gammy. They flew me to Los Angeles and it was right after um, the tragedy involving Alec Baldwin and the producer on the set of Rust. And it was in response to Marianne uh, Jacoby Gray, which is one of my mentors. She wrote a an article and the LA Times picked it up and it was just about unintentional harm, accidental death and the weight of this very sensitive topic and the LA Times picked it up. So in March of 2019, my podcast launched and it is a very niche thing, but it started to grow and I got more involved with the, at the time it was accidental impacts founded by Dr. Marianne Gray. That turned into a good friendship. She's in California. I'm in Texas. And, and her program began to grow, became a nonprofit, an actual foundation. Then in November of 2021, we were flown to Los Angeles and, and got to be on the Red Table Talk and tell Jada and the world, really, um, what it's like to be involved in an unintentional death and the weight of it, the guilt, the shame, how do we cope? How do we find help? 
and just bringing an awareness to a particular topic, which I didn't even know at the time of talking with you, but we call it moral injury. Like I knew that every aspect of me and my being was just crushed, but I didn't know what it was called. Well, now there's a scientific term and it's typically associated with soldiers, the moral injury. And, and it, and it is a, it is a derivative, but not exactly the same as PTSD. It's an actual of a injury to the soul. And she's your mentor. And that's when, that's the first time you guys got to meet in person. Yes. We had only met through Zoom meetings and, and they flew us both, both together and, and got to meet for the first time out, out there on the set. And it was just amazing. Well, they wanted us to meet on camera, the whole shebang, you know, you know, tears flowing, but we both knew that we might end up ruining our makeup. So, um, Mary Ann being the, the woman that she, she is, she came and I get this little tap, tap, tap on my trailer. And there she is. And she said, we were not about to ruin our makeup. <laughs> she gives me a big <laughs> hug and it was literally an answer to prayer, Scott. I had prayed and hoped that someday I could meet this pioneer, this fearless woman who was the first, the very first to step out, take all the hate, all the heat, and talk about this taboo topic. And um, Because it happened to her. It happened to her. Her accident involved a, a young boy running into the street. It, it changed the whole course of her life. I and mean, she was a social psychologist at UCLA, a head chair, and she experienced the whole identity crisis and the moral injury when there wasn't a topic and PTSD before PTSD was even clinically really known about. There's such a connection when you meet someone who just knows. When you meet someone who's experienced something, whether it's loss or a certain type of diagnosis, or even, you know, when you meet another marathon runner and uh, ultimate runner like you do, you know, and you meet someone else, it's an instant connection. You, you love something that most people don't, you know, and we both had different experiences with different circumstances, but we just knew something are unspoken. We just knew. And what about your podcast? Tell us about that. It's Axonal Hope. I am so grateful for this. It had to take a little bit of a back burner for a little while, but I am back in gear and going to nurture it a little bit. And it reaches people all over the world. And as far as I know, it's still the only one in the world that talks about accidental death. So I share stories of hope and healing from a faith perspective on both sides. So I have people come on the show who have caused an accident like myself and share share their experience, whatever they feel comfortable sharing. And we try to focus on the hope of getting through it, overcoming it. And then I also have occasionally people who have lost a loved one and had to forgive someone like me. I want to honor their grief and their struggle and overcoming and their hope because I also believe hearing the story that someone was able to forgive and able to go on and hope again, despite having this loss, that that also is is healing for both parties, and, and that's kind of the focus. and And occasionally, I have um, therapists come on and give us any kind of new therapy, like EMDR, 
practice of grounding, tapping, journaling, those things that are tools that people can use when they're going through this hard time. The other thing you've done since we spoke is you've written a book. Yes. You've been busy. (laughs) (laughs) And I got a master's degree. I finished it. I did it. I finished. Wow. Congratulations on that. Yeah. In your book, you basically tell your story. Yeah, it's um, it's called Left Turn Life Unimagined. You can, and it is seventy two days. It is the couple of days before the accident to the grand jury decision. So much happened in that such a short amount of time. It was a place where I could put all the details that I had continued to play within my mind, and I wasn't able to let go of them. So I continued to. There's something with trauma where you don't want to let go of certain memories too, because I didn't want to dishonor the event or dishonor this thing that happened with David. Right. If you forget some details, it feels like you're, you're saying that wasn't important enough to remember. Right. Or even it was starting to get blurry and then I would get confused and then I would get frustrated with myself or even just the, who gives me the right to let go? Yeah, I'm still dealing with some of that. You know, who gives me the right to move on? It's part of self-punishment in some ways too, reliving that. So I put it in a place, but at the end of every chapter, I try to give where I was at the time. So I waited till five years. I waited till after five years from the accident to publish. I wanted to give honor to this event, you know, for the family as well give space. So I would kind of give some insight of what I've learned from that situation or how God used it in my mind. And then, of course, at the end of the story, I was still, I wasn't confident then to say, do I forgive myself? You know, I can say confidently, I forgive the fact that I am human and that I have limitations and I fall short. I I don't excuse it. I still take complete you know, accountability for everything that I can. I should have treated it like a busy cross-section. It was still my responsibility. I'm still responsible. But I've come to a place where I forgive myself and it is totally okay for me to say, I'm having a good day and I'm happy and I'm joyful. I have hard days, but it's okay. Where when I talked with you, I don't think that I was really comfortable saying, no, I, I'm, I'm happy. You were still in the process, mm-hmm. yeah. Very much so. You've really, you've done your best to turn this tragedy into something for good with all of your work. And we'll have links to your podcast, your book, the Red Table Talk interview. We'll have all of that in the show notes for this episode. So good to talk to you again. You too. Please keep in touch. And I'm, I'm so proud of you. I mean, you're an ordinary guy that you just did what following your heart and look at how many brought people together from all over the world and just a neat way you're exposing so many situations that people get curious about but yeah and maybe we'll see each other at a conference one of these days one of these days we'll have to yes let's make that happen in the episode notes you can see a recent picture of jen and her family and there's also a full transcript That's all at whatwasthatlike.com slash 156. And if there's something you were hoping I would ask her, but I didn't, Jen is also in our private Facebook group. Actually, a lot of our past guests are in there. 
come on in and join the conversations. Whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. The flashback episodes are turning out to be pretty popular, so we'll continue doing this. I'll do one of these each month, and it'll always be on a Friday in between the regular new episodes. So you'll still be hearing a brand new story every other Friday, just like I've been doing since day one. I have to tell you something, though. If I can kind of pull back the curtain a little bit, when I hear these early episodes, it reminds me of how I kind of changed the way I create the podcast. I mean, I'll hear little things that I would have edited out if it were a new episode today. And the other thing is, back in the early days, I just talked too much. Thankfully, before too long, I figured it out that what you signed up for is not to hear me talk. It's to hear the guest tell their story. My job is to mostly stay out of the way of that. But sometimes I'll hear these early episodes and I just want to say, Hey, Scott, how about you stop talking and just listen? I've definitely improved, though. Graphics for this episode were created by Bob Bretz. Full episode transcription was created by James Lye. And now it's listener story time. The listener story comes at the end of each episode, and it's a 5-10 to minute story that was sent in by a listener, just like you. If you have a story, and you do, we all want to hear it. Just record it on your phone and email it to me, scott at whatwasthatlike.com. This week's listener story illustrates why you shouldn't take shelter under a tree during a thunderstorm. Stay safe, and I'll see you in one week with a brand new story. Hey, Scott. I just wanted to start off by saying how much I enjoy your podcast. It is wonderful. I listen to it doing everything I do throughout my day. I'm a homesteader, so I'm often listening to your podcast in my garden or tending to my chickens or harvesting and canning, even my day-to-day tasks like cleaning. So I just want to say thanks. It's a really great podcast. My story begins uh, when I was five years old, and I went camping with my parents on Crown Land on an island. Crownland camping was something my parents often did with me, and they did it a lot when they didn't have kids. This particular time, I was five years old, and we were camping with myself, my mom, my dad, my aunt, my uncle, and my uncle's son. Some of the story is the recount of my family members. I can remember being very excited to go camping with my parents, especially because it was just me. My younger sister, who would have been two and a half or three, wasn't going to be coming. So I was excited to have my parents all to myself and enjoy the weekend fishing and swimming. I can remember boating out to the island where we were going to camp. And it was, at the time, a big island To me, obviously, being only five years old, I can remember exploring the island and seeing where we were going to pop the tents up and where we would swim. And I do have some memories of foraging for wild blueberries. We live in Ontario, Canada, so wild blueberries are very popular here and they are delicious. As the weekend went on, my parents decided to take me out fishing after we had dinner. 
and my uncle and his son went out fishing in their own boat, and my aunt stayed back on the island. As we were leaving in the boat, I can remember my aunt yelling to us that she was listening to the radio and they were calling for thunderstorms. I don't really think my parents thought too much of it. I can remember looking at the sky and seeing the blue sky and some clouds. And I don't remember at that point being worried about a storm. Not that I was worried to begin with, but I don't remember the thought of a storm or rain happening because the sky was so blue. As we were done fishing and we started to head back towards the island, the sky began to be very dark. And I can remember hearing rumblings off in the distance and asking my parents what that was. And they told me that it must just be trucks or something far away. So again, I wasn't really concerned. I didn't think I needed to be. My parents weren't concerned and just carried on with what we were doing. As we got closer back to the island and got back on the island, there was a black sky basically on half of the island and blue sky on the other half of the island. And the thunder and lightning began. My dad had this tarp set up so we could sit under it to shade us from any rain or sun. That was something he often did when we went camping. We would have this shelter to sit under. I can remember huddling into my dad's lap as he was crouched down. My mom sitting close by and my aunt sitting the furthest away from me, but still close enough. She was sitting on a chair. My uncle and cousin were still not back yet and were still out fishing. I can remember the thunder becoming very loud and all of a sudden there was a huge flash and the lightning had hit the tree that we basically were all sitting under. There was a garbage bag on that that had our garbage hanging on it to prevent any wildlife on the island from getting into it, and it had exploded and obliterated everywhere. I can remember my aunt screaming. Her hands and feet were on fire, and she was knocked unconscious and flew off of her chair from the electricity. After that, I don't really have any recollection of what happened. Uh, my parents said there was smoke from the tree getting hit by lightning. And later on that night, I can remember waking up to my leg and arm hurting. And there was a hole in the tent because bark from the tree had punctured the tent. I remember waking up and complaining about the pain I was in. And my dad had the pain, a similar pain on the same side of his body that I had the pain on mine. So we just assumed it was the after effects of the electricity going through our bodies. I can remember my uncle and his son coming back after the storm had hit and they had no idea it had even stormed. They heard thunder in the distance but didn't realize it was over the lake at that point because the lake we were on was a very big lake. Still to this day, I am terrified of storms, and so is my aunt. She ended up being okay. We were all okay, luckily. Well, physically okay, I mean. Mentally and psychologically, not so much. Uh, my entire life, I've struggled with storms. As I said, I am terrified of them. The older I got, the worse it 
it got and still is the older I'm getting and I'm 32. My parents brought me to the doctor after it happened just to have me checked out, make sure I was okay. And the doctor told them that I should grow out of any fears I might have surrounding storms and forget about it. But I've not forgotten. It is something that still haunts me. And it's something that with every storm, the memories come back and I'm afraid. So I'm often (laughs) inside my house. You will not see me camping or anywhere that I don't feel safe if a storm is to approach. We are lucky that our farmhouse where we live right now is kind of in a little valley. And so often any storms that happen will happen to the north of us or the south of us, but usually skips our our house. People are often shocked when I say that when I was a little girl, I was hit by lightning. Now, I mean, I wasn't directly hit by lightning, but we were on the roots of the tree where lightning hit the tree and we felt it. Uh...